0: If you would turn to Psalms 139, if you're not familiar with this this psalm, uh, you just heard it. Wes actually wrote that song this summer for us, and it is uh, pretty close to the psalm. got all his words from Psalms 139, and that's what we're going to be going over today. For most of us, uh, it's a familiar psalm. It's one of the most read, uh, well-known, beloved psalms in all of the Psalter. But for how beloved it is, I, I truly believe it's uh, really misunderstood, and a lot of times even misinterpreted. It's actually really appropriate that it was sung this morning after hearing about the news of tragedy and being faced with evil. Many of the uh, psalms, all of them are, are usually categorized in different types of categories, For example, there's praise psalms, there's Thanksgiving psalms, there's celebration psalms, there's worship psalms, there's there's lament psalms, and so on. And it's actually very helpful to classify them, because there's certain patterns you see in each of these categories as you go through the psalms. It helps you really interpret the psalms, and I want to be clear, this is not an exact science. There's probably seven seven different types of psalms or subcategories, and not everyone agrees on that how many different categories there should be, and not everyone agrees on which psalms go into which categories, but for the most part, there's agreement by theologians. I say all this because Psalms 139, this beloved psalm that we just heard, is actually a very hard psalm to place. Many commentators see this psalm as a praise psalm. One commentator said this, that Psalms 139 is often read as a calm reflection and praise to God who is omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent, and how these awesome divine qualities provoke wonder and comfort from the composer. And I think mostly that's how most people, when they, they know and think of the psalm, that's how they interpret this psalm. And, and we just heard some of the famous lines, verse 2 in the psalm, if you want to look, 139 verse 2, it says, You know when I sit down and when I rise up. Or verse 7, look at verse 7, it says this, Where shall I go from your spirit? Oh, where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. Or look at verse 13. For you form my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. God, you are all-knowing. God, you are everywhere. God, you are all-powerful. Verses 1 through 7, or verses 1 through 18, you just see this high praise of who God is. It's the, the words we sung this morning. But then you get to verse 19. And it seems almost out of place. Look at verse 19. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malice intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. The psalm of praise, almost out of nowhere, verse 19, turns into this cry from David's heart to destroy the wicked. And because of these four verses, right, which I believe is kind of the heart of the psalms, it's it's the climax, it's where it's going, most theologians don't think this is a praise psalm. Most, actually, this beloved psalm think this psalm is a lament psalm. A lament psalm is an individual or a group, in this case David, an individual crying out to God in distress. I really believe that's key to understanding the psalm. It gives you context. We don't know the circumstances behind this psalm like we do Psalms 51. We don't have the information that's going on in David's life or where in David's life did he write this psalm. We know two things. First, David is the author. Psalm makes that clear. Look at the heading to the choir master. Psalm of David. But the second thing we know is that David is crying out to the Lord in distress. And here's what's amazing, and this is maybe kind of out of place for us. This is what's amazing. It's in this distress... That David finds comfort in God's sovereignty. In God's wisdom and knowledge. In God's presence. This psalm actually really strikes at the heart of the problem of evil. If God is all-loving, and if God is all-powerful, how can evil exist? When you think about that. Many people try to answer this question by saying, well, God limits his knowledge. He he limits his power. He limits his sovereignty. And that's why evil exists. God is all-loving. But in other words, he's not all-powerful. Or he is all-powerful, and he limits that power. Therefore, evil exists. I want to be clear. You'll find that nowhere in Scripture. You'll find that nowhere in Scripture. Yet, I believe it's what most Christians believe When it comes to evil. Again, I want to be very clear on this. Sin and evil exist in this world because man has freely chose to sin. We live in a fallen world. There's evil in this world because man, starting with Adam and Eve, sinned. And I want to say this very clearly. They sinned out of their own free will, by their own free choice. But, nowhere in Scripture does it say God has limited his knowledge, power, and or sovereignty to give man free will. In fact, you see the exact opposite everywhere in Scripture. For example, Daniel four thirty-four through 35, it says this, "...for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of earth are accounted as nothing." And he does according to his will among the host of heavens and among the, the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Because he's keen. He's the ruler. He is God. Isaiah 45 verse 7, it says this, I have formed light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Or you get to Ephesians 1.11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to his will. What does all things mean? Well, verse 10 actually tells us. Verse 10 says this as he is as a plan for the f- fullness of time to unite all things. There it is. That's the context. All things in him, things in heaven and things in earth. Therefore, thing, all things means things in heaven and things on earth. Meaning, all things means all things. <laughs> that's what it means to be God. God works all things according to the counsel of his will. Lamentations 3.37, Who has spoken, and it came to pass, unless the Lord has commanded it. In other words, nothing's out of his control. Is it not from the mouth of the Lord most high that good and bad come? Or Matthew 10.29, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. And I could just keep going. I mean, verse after verse after verse after verse in Scripture, just saying that God is God. <laughs> and it's not just random verses. Think about whole stories. The story of Joseph and his brothers, right? Joseph thrown into to slavery. And I want to be clear. His brothers threw him into slavery by their own free will. Then he gets thrown into prison. This man that was trying to be faithful to God is in prison and not our prisons. In prison. And you had to, he doesn't say this in scripture, but you had to believe at some point Joseph cries out to God, Why God? Why are you doing this? Well, we know the end of the story and so we get excited when we hear he's in prison. Because we know exactly what happens. He ends up in second in command in Egypt. And he's able to save his family. Those same people that threw him into prison, threw him into slavery, he's able to save his family. And this is what he says at the end of this, Genesis fifty twenty. As for you, he's talking to his brothers. Joseph is talking to his brothers. He says, as for you, you meant evil. Your free will, you threw me into prison, and you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good. To bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. God's in the the little details of everyday life. If you don't believe that, you're my favorite story. I love this story. Showing God's power and sovereignty, Kings 22 says this, one of the most evil kings there is, says uh, God tells him, uh, you're going to die at the next war. And so this king, trying to escape God's sovereign plan, dresses someone else up as king and says, well, I will pretend like I'm not king. He'll look like king. And this is what it says, in First Kings twenty two verse thirty three, and when they captured, or when the captains and the chariots saw that it was not the king of Israel, they turned back from pursuing him. In other words, they gave up. They saw that it was someone else dressed up as king. But a certain man, another way of saying that is a random man, drew his bow at random. In other words, a random person grabs his bow and shoots an arrow in the air at random. And struck the king of Israel between the scale, armor, and the breastplate and kills him. From man's perspective, we live in a random universe. At best, if there is a God, he's deistic, meaning he's hands off, or he purposely, purposely limits his sovereignty. But the Bible reveals. That God is completely sovereign and completely in control of everything. R.C. Sproul says, and he's famous for saying this, there's not a maverick molecule in the universe. Actually, the Bible takes it one step further. Hebrews 1, it says, He upholds the universe by the word of His power. In other words, the molecules would fall apart if He didn't stay, stay together. And I get it, that causes Problems. It causes problems. What about evil? Is God in control of evil? Well, The Bible is extremely clear that God does not tempt and God doesn't directly cause evil. But the Bible is also clear that God uses evil for his good purposes. Listen, and this is extremely important, God's Complete sovereignty and power causes some problems. I get that. But it also brings so much comfort. Your life is never out of control. It may feel like it's out of control. It may feel like God's not there in the hard times. It may feel like God doesn't care. But you're always in the hand of a good God no matter what. think of Job. The story of Job, this man that lost his fortune, then lost his family, then becomes critically ill to the point he's just unrecognizable. And he wants to know why, through the whole book of Job. Why, God? Why would you allow this? Why would you let this happen? You know what's interesting about the book of Job? we never get the answer Why? You know, God could have came down. It's like, I would have liked to have been there, but, you know, I want to make sure you guys have free will, so I'm hands off. That's not what we get. At the end of the book, God just shows his glory to Job, and Job says, when he sees this glory, he sees how awesome God is. He says, I spoke too soon. You're God. Actually, this is the exact words of Job. Listen to what it says Job 40, 42, verse 1. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things. In other words, you're all powerful. And that no purpose of yours can be faulted. In other words, your sovereign. (laughs) Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? That's a question God asked Job, and this is his answer. Therefore I have uttered what I do not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Look at Psalms 139 verse 6. David's heart cries the same thing. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. David, like Job, is in some kind of of major distress. There's some evil he is faced with. So much so that he cries out to God to destroy the wicked. And how does David seek comfort in the face of evil? The same way God brought comfort to Job, by celebrating the greatness of God. Celebrating God's omniscience, that he's all-knowing. Celebrating that God's omnipresent, that he's everywhere, he's all-present. And celebrating that he's omnipotent, meaning he's all-powerful. And that's our four points in this sermon today. Again, you heard it in music form. I was just thinking, man, that would have been a beautiful song at a at a, at a funeral. That God has you. And he's holding you. You're in his hands. That's what David cried out. The four points today is God is all-knowing. He's omniscient. God is all-present. He's omnipresent. And God is omnipotent, meaning... He is all-powerful. And the fourth point is this. David's trust in an all-powerful, good God. So let's start with the first point. God is omniscient. He's all-knowing. Look at verse 1. Oh, Lord, you have searched me and know me. I mean, before we get going into this psalm, I, I just want to point out two things. The first thing is the, the underlying assumption that we see that God is good. Look at the end of the psalm because David has a book in verse 1 and then verse uh, 23. Their are bookends. So verse 1 is, O oh Lord, you have searched me and know me. Verse 23 says, Search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. In other words, David wants God to search him. Right? David trusts God's judgments. Because he knows God is a good God. Remember Psalm 73. Truly, God is good to Israel. So there's this underlining assumption that God is good. The second point I want to point out is this psalm is intensely personal. It's intensely personal. Search me. Know me. Derek Kidner, who's a theologian, a British theologian, and that makes me laugh because of this quote. You just imagine. I'm not going to try to do a British voice, but... Any small thought that we may have of God are magnificently transcended. That's it. By this psalm, sounds British to me. Yet, for all its heights and its depths, it remains intensely personal from first to last. For how much David is celebrating this this mighty God, it is intensely personal. Psalm. Look at it again, verse one. Oh Lord, you have searched me. And known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You, you've discerned my thoughts from afar. David's saying, God, you know me. You know me personally. You know my heart. You've discerned my thoughts. Look at verse 3. You search out my past and my lying down and are acquainted with my, all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. In, in other words, before I even speak, you know the words that are coming. You know me better than I know myself. Verse 5, you have hemmed me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. That idea of God laying his hand upon someone is a sign of protection and blessing throughout Scripture. David is celebrating that this God knows him because this God loves him. This God will protect him. This God will bless him. Even if it doesn't understand why this is happening, this is stress that he's in, this evil that he is faced with, he trusts God. And he says, verse six, "Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot obtain it. Just like Job. I don't know why this is happening, God, but you do. You know why? In other words, David is not trying to explain away the evil. He's not demanding God tell him why. All he says is Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. I don't know. I trust you though, God, because you are good. And you know everything. But God doesn't just know everything, He's also everywhere. And that leads us to our second point. God is omnipresent. Right? He's everywhere. Look at verse seven. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? It's a rhetorical question the answer is nowhere nowhere you can't escape god's presence he is everywhere he's omnipresent right this is a contrast from the pagan gods the pagan gods were always connected to a people and a land the god of the bible although connected to israel throughout the whole old testament is the god of all the nations although connected to the promised land and the temple he is everywhere Verse 8, if I ascend to heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. God is everywhere. You know, to a lot of people that's scary. An all-knowing God that that knows our thoughts, that knows our heart, that knows us better than we know ourselves, that is everywhere we go. But it's not scary for David. Look at verse 9. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the othermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. To David, God being everywhere is a good thing. It's not a scary thing. It's a good thing. Right? Remember, David's in distress. He's facing some evil, and I mean pure evil. And the fact that God is there brings comfort in this distress. It just reminds me of being a dad. <laughs> August, my son, is not the biggest fan of the dark. The other night I told him, I said, hey, go to, go to your room. It was that night, and he walks about halfway stops, and it's dark, so he's terrified. And so I walked with him, and it just amazed me as I'm walking with him into the dark, Like, I purposely don't turn on the lights as we walk into the room because I just want to see how he reacts. And he's whistling and singing a song. Like, the terror is gone, and nothing changed. It's the same room. It's the same darkness. But there's safety knowing Dad is there, that I was with him, and that he wasn't alone. Listen, God is our Father, and there's safety knowing he is everywhere, even in your distress. Even if it doesn't feel like it. Look at verse 11. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night. In other words, if I'm in this darkness and feel unseen. right? This is a metaphor, right? Sometimes it feels like God is distant. In our distress and troubles. It doesn't feel like he's there. In our darkest times. It feels like he can't see us look at verse 12 even the darkness is not dark to you the night is bright as day for darkness is as light with you in other words david i see you david i see you i see you in the darkness and not only not only that i am with you in the darkness I and mean, darkness is as light to god it says God is there, not only is he there in the darkness, because he's everywhere, he makes darkness into light. He turns evil, trouble, and distress into good. I always think that the the devil has the most frustrating job in the world. Every time he thinks he does something, like the Son of Man comes to earth, he lives this life, and he's like, I got him on the cross, I killed him. Oh yeah, that just saved everyone. Everything the devil does, God turns it to good. That's what Romans 8 28 says. And for we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. In other words, for his children, he works all things to good. He doesn't always tell us how he's doing it or why he's doing it. Think about Job. Job never gets an answer. We don't get an answer in the book of Job, but I know this, for thousands of years, that book has been comforting people in trouble. Romans 8, 28 says, for God causes all things to work together for good. That only can happen if God is all-knowing, if God is everywhere, if God is good, and if God is all-powerful. That leads us to our third point. God is omnipotent. Meaning, God is all powerful. Look at verse 13. For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. Just take a moment and think about the human body just how amazing our bodies are. Think of the complexity of an eye. Taking light waves and making it into information where we can, we can use and see, see depth. Like I think of high-definition high definition TVs that it's like 4K now, and the, I saw 8K the other day. I'm like, how high-definition can you get? Yet our eyes are so advanced, we can see the difference. What about the cell, right? The smallest unit in, the, in, in your body. The DNA strand within a cell programmed information more complex than, than a phone, an iPhone. Microscopic machines reading the information and making parts. Incredible. And there's 37 trillion cells in a human body. How about this? Your body heals itself. We thought about that? I mean, we just... The other day... My daughter skinned her knee. My first thought was, I'm glad she wasn't wearing her new pants. <laughs> I'm just joking. That was not my first thought. But think about that. Think about that. Pants don't, don't like Stuff doesn't heal itself. But your skin does. Let me ask a question. Did you cause that? Did you cause you, your spirit and your body, did you do that? Did you make yourself? Of course not, right? We don't even make our, all your hearts are beating right now. We don't even do that. God gets all the glory for the human body. It proclaims, it screams of the glory of God. It screams of the power of God. And here's the amazing thing. For how awesome and glorious and big God is, he knows you. He made you personally, in his image. Man is the pinnacle of God's creation. Look at verse 15. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret. Okay, I want you to think about this. David's talking about the womb. Verse 13 makes that very clear, a baby within the womb. When is the baby, verse 15, being made in secret? When is this? before the mother knows she's pregnant. There's an intimacy, in other words, with God before there's an intimacy with mom. Before the mom even knows that there's a baby inside of her. Verse 15, My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, er, intricately woven In the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. Unformed substance or unformed body. What's that? In the womb, verse 13, before the mom knows she's pregnant, verse 15 and 13. This is when David was an embryo. God knew him. God loved him. Verse sixteen, your eyes saw my unformed substance in your book were written. Every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. In other words, you knew every single day of my life. You are completely sovereign, even over my life. The days that were formed for me before I was born, in my unformed substance. Intensely personal. And David ends with just high praise of God, verse 17 and 18, for how precious to me are your thoughts, O God, how vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they would be more than the sands. I awake, and I am still with you. In other words, he's saying and it's like a dream, this amazing God that, that knows me, that, that loves me, that cares about me. It's like a dream, but unlike a dream, I awake, and I'm still with you. It's real. David is affirming the trustworthiness of God before he even touches on his trial. Before he even talks about his struggle, the distress that he's going through. God is good. He is all-knowing. He is all-present. He is all-powerful. And I trust him. Therefore, therefore David says, "I I can trust you in this time of distress that leads us to our fourth point david's trust in an all-powerful good god i trust you but look at verse 19 oh that you would slay the wicked O god oh men of blood depart from me men of blood just means death there are men either trying to kill david and, and probably have killed close friends of him maybe even family And he is saying, I trust you, God, but please, please do something. Look at verse 20. They speak against you with malice intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who, who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. You know, when you read through the Psalms, there's some hard sayings in the Psalms. Look at verse 19, oh, that you would slay the wicked. David is crying out, kill my enemies. What about love, right? Aren't we supposed to love our enemies? Look at verse 22, I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. You have to remember as you're reading through the Psalms that this is poetic language meaning it's an, it's an exaggeration. It's meant to express emotion, the emotion that David has towards these evil men that are causing bloodshed. David is crying from the heart in the, in the face of pure evil. It's amazing in God's sovereignty and providence that we have seen pure evil last night. Out. Why? So that those who are going through a similar distress, those that are faced with a similar evil, the psalm would resonate with them. One commentator put it this way. He said, said about actually all the hard sayings in the psalms, even if we, we have not faced the kind of injustice that proceed, or, or produces such prayers— The impeccatory psalms can provide a window into another's world. We ourselves may not feel such emotion in our moment in history, but others do and others have. Note, one of the hardest psalms in all of Scripture, Psalms 137, was sung by the African Americans in the slave trades these psalms then can instruct our compassion as well as give us words and strategies on what to do and pray if and when we face similar dire circumstances. Listen, the fact that the end of this psalm does not resonate with us should make us thankful. It should produce thanksgiving. Because honestly, we live in the minority. The majority of Christians throughout history have faced heavy persecution and probably could relate to David's cry for justice. But when we, we pray for justice, like David did, oh, that you would slay the wicked, verse 19, we need to understand that we are the wicked. We are the wicked. We, we went over Psalms 51 last week. David, you are that man. And that's why David ends this psalm by saying, verse 23, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. If there's evil in here, show me, God, so I can repent. Verse 24, and and see if there, er, there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. Show me my sins so I can repent and cry out for forgiveness and lead me to the way of everlasting. A beautiful psalm, amazing as I was studying it. I love hearing it in in music this morning too. I actually want to end with a quote though. It's a quote on this psalm by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a theologian, a man who could relate to David, a man who faced pure evil, like David. Dietrich Bonhoeffer grew up in Germany. He actually came to America in the 1930s to study and teach theology. He went back to Germany during World War II to suffer with his people and to oppose the Nazi Nazi regime. This is a man that can relate to David's distress. He didn't just pray for justice. He actually attempted to assassinate Hitler. He wanted to try to end this evil that he was faced with. He was caught, he was in prison, and eventually he was hanged two weeks before the U.S. liberated Germany. And this way, he writes on this psalm. God's vengeance did not strike the sinners, but the one sinless man who stood in the sinner's place, namely God's own Son. Jesus Christ bore the wrath of God, for the execution of which this psalm prays, oh, that you would slay the wicked. Jesus stilled God's wrath towards sin and prayed in that hour of the execution of divine judgment, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. No other than he who himself bore the wrath of God could pray in this way. I love this next line. This this needs to preach to, to the church in our generation. That was the end of all phony thoughts about the the love of God, which do not take sin seriously. God takes sin seriously. God hates and redirects his enemies to the only righteous one, and this one asks forgiveness for them. Only in the cross of Jesus Christ is the love of God to be found. As God forgives his enemies and adopts them into his family. Amazing psalm. David in distress. In distress, it causes him to celebrate the greatness of God, that he's all-knowing, that he's he's all-present, that he's all powerful. Then he cries out to justice for justice. He cries for the destruction of the wicked. But at the same time, he knows himself to be wicked. Therefore, he cries out to God, Search me. Lead me to the way of everlasting. Lead me to the way of the righteous. Lead me to the way of Jesus. If you don't know Jesus this morning, put your faith in him. Trust in him. God made a way for us sinners by sending his son to live a perfect life, to die on the cross for our sins. All those that put their faith in him, that trust in him, will be saved. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father God, I thank you for this wonderful psalm, Lord, as we we face evil, Lord, in our nation. this Last night, yesterday, Lord, I, I don't know all the details, but as we see the depravity of man, the wickedness of man, Lord, God, I pray. God, I pray for justice. Pray for the salvation of those that are a part of of this evil, the salvation of those that experience this evil. I pray for the salvation of those that, that are around this whole situation, Lord. But at the same time, I cry out for justice because I want to see evil turned into right. Lord, at the same time, I understand that justice would be laid on my back for all the sins that I have done, Lord. So I, I cry out for mercy, Lord, knowing that your Son has come and died on the cross for my sins, Lord. And I thank you and praise you for that. We thank you for the psalm, Lord. We pray that we celebrate how awesome you are, Lord. And not just that, that, that this awesome God knows us personally and is with us in the hard times. It's, he is with us when we face pure evil, Lord. We don't know why evil exists or why it's happening to us, Lord, in the moments that the, it happens and the stress that we see, Lord. I pray that we trust you through it, though, knowing that you are good and that you're with us, Lord. I pray that the, the sovereignty of God, the, the, the all-powerfulness of you, Lord, brings comfort to us, knowing that you are with us, Lord. In your Son's name, amen.